0: It is a special uh, privilege uh, for Altadena Baptist Church to be so close to Fuller Theological Seminary. And uh, it's over many years now we've been uh, enriched by those who are in our midst, who are going through the seminary, sometimes by faculty members who are part of our congregation. And I think you gotta go out and live in the center of Nebraska or someplace to appreciate, I'm sorry, Joe, to appreciate, oh, to appreciate uh, what a blessing it is to be uh, this close to one of the centers of study of the theology around Jesus Christ. And so Larry is in the Philippines, extending uh, that same gift. And here uh, we have today, Matt Lumpkin. And last month, uh, uh, Garth Batik, uh preached to us. And it just particularly delights me to see the quality of people that uh, we're passing the torch to. Now, I'm not ready to pass the torch, don't get me wrong. Uh, Connie's going to retire before me. But, uh, but, but I've, I've just en- enjoyed sitting under, under Matt in the Sunday school class when I'm able to and really respect him and the gifts God has given to you. So I commend him to you and let the Lord speak through him to your heart.
1: I'm going to raise this up a bit, Roland. I uh, you usually don't get clapped for before you say anything. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great introduction. I appreciate that. You know, it's, it, it is an expression of trust for, for Connie and George to give up the pulpit and let me uh, speak here. Uh, it's sort of like the first time Glenn asked me to play guitar with the worship team. He had never heard me play guitar before. And Connie and George have never heard me preach. Just saying. It shows a lot of trust, which I appreciate. This is the first Sunday of Lent. Now, if you're like me, you don't know very much about Lent. In fact, I didn't know much about Lent until fairly recently. Lent, uh, as far as I knew, was a time that you gave up eating chocolate. That was all that I knew about it. And in fact, uh, I didn't learn more about it until uh, my wife gave up eating chocolate one Lent. Um, Melody decided that she was not going to buy or eat any chocolate for the duration of Lent. Um, that wasn't fair trade. This was an intentional choice that she made because she um, had been aware of the, some of the issues around chocolate and chocolate production being a kind of a... Uh, th- there's actually a lot of um, slave labor involved in some of the, chocolate, uh, the cocoa plantations. There's actually some human trafficking involved in... Um, a lot of times children are targeted and moved into work on these plantations. They don't have any option. They don't get paid. They don't have a way to get out. Um, And it's really a terrible dark side to uh, something that's a part of, seems pretty innocuous and part of everyday life. So she had become aware of this and decided to, as an expression of her faith, to give this up for a time. And in fact, uh, after Lent was over, she stuck with it. Um, She, as far as I know, the current policy is she will eat chocolate that is not fair trade if it's given to her, but she won't actually use any of her money to buy it. And I, I discovered how serious she was about this when I brought home a, a big thing of Hershey's syrup shortly after she had made this commitment. And uh, this was an important part of my diet. Uh, and <laughs> to pour it into, into the milk and make the chocolate milk, and I've been drinking this since I was a kid, and she was very upset that I had brought this non-fair trade chocolate in right in the, the beginning of her, uh, her fast in Lent. The other unintended consequence of uh, Melody's choice to give up chocolate for Lent and to continue, it's gone on for about three years now, um, with no chocolate that's not fair trade, uh, has been that our daughter, Eleanor, who's five, has gotten very good at spotting the fair trade certified logo. Um, and she knows what it means. She really does. Because uh, she <laughs> it impacted her life whenever there wasn't as much chocolate around. <laughs> or there wasn't chocolate that she, uh, that she had to be explained to why we didn't buy a certain chocolate that she might want. So she actually knows now some of the issues involved in chocolate production, some of the issues involved in human trafficking and, and, and slave labor um, that is, believe it or not, still going on today. Um, and this was, we, we felt a little bit reticent sort of telling this story to her. But Melody's choice to take part in the Lent ritual of giving up this chocolate sort of brought this story into our lives. And it's, it's a, a story that was new to us, of people being used up to bring us something that we didn't even really need. And in fact, this is not a new story at all, is it? It's a story of people who have power, using their power to get what they want out of people who don't have the power to stop them. And if you have an interest in keeping things that way, if you have an interest in this story, one of the best ways to do away with that story like that is to erase it, to paper over it, and replace it with something that's easier to swallow for yourself and anyone else who might stumble upon a child working in a plantation for no pay with nowhere to go. In fact, you might say that one key way to understand the Gospel is as God's final unmasking of of every lie that tries to paper over the suffering of his people. The Gospel story peels back the layers, and it's not always a pleasant or painless process. One way to keep ourselves from turning away from the way that the Gospel shines light into the false stories embedded in our own lives is to make the decision to structure our lives in a way that we have to keep looking. And one way people have found to do this is with rituals. Lent is a ritual, and a ritual is a way of telling stories with actions. It's a way of doing something that also means something. But rituals have a bad reputation. The word ritual calls up empty actions, going through the motions, dead rituals, acting out dead myths about dead gods. It's got kind of a bad name. When I hear the word myth, even, I think about the mythology surrounding the Greek gods, which I understand have undergone a certain revival um, in the, under the guise of Percy Jackson, the Lightning Thief, uh, which made his, his film debut last year. Um, these are, almost no one believed these stories, um, except that they believe that they might actually make some money off of them. But, and almost no one finds them worth repeating or living out. But they once were stories that set the stage of reality, that defined the bounds of what was possible for a whole society of people. A ritual's meaning is tied up in the story that it tells, the story that it expresses. So I started thinking, what are the stories and myths that define reality for us today in America, in California, in Altadena? Here's a few of the candidates that I thought of. The best way for a man to show his love for a woman is with a diamond that costs two months' salary. <laughs> anybody Anybody living that myth out? Anybody still paying for that myth? (laughs) Here's another one. When you're feeling feeling sad or bored or upset by something, go out and buy yourself something. It'll make you feel better. Is that a myth that that we live out? Is that one of our stories? How about this one? Every hardworking American can pull him or herself up by their own bootstraps, get a job, and own their own home with two cars. In California, this myth is almost harder to believe than the Percy Jackson stories, especially the owning your own home part. But it's, this, we actually call this the American dream, right? This is, this, is the, this is one of the stories that we tell ourselves. How about this one? If you love and serve God, nothing really bad can ever happen to you. Have you heard that one? That one, is, that one holds up until something really bad happens to you. Now, I've intentionally tried to state these in extreme ways to hopefully point out the way that these myths betray themselves with their own absurdity, but I suspect I'm not the only one who has lived by, struggled with, and rebelled against these stories at one time or another. These myths may be false stories, but that doesn't mean we don't listen to them and tell them to one another with our words and with our actions and how we spend our time how we structure our lives. You might say that one reason I come back to church every week is to hear George and Connie remind me that these myths I hear echoing all around me aren't the truth, at least not the whole truth. I need to hear that there's a bigger story going on. The story of God rescuing humanity from our own self-destruction and ultimately creating a new heaven and a new earth where all things will be made right. Now that story is just as powerful, and I would say more powerful, than these other smaller stories. And as a Christian, this is the story that I've chosen to orient my life around. And I don't just need to hear it. I need to tell it. And I need to act it out before it becomes a part of me and before I can become a part of it. Rituals are stories acted out in the flesh. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Aren't there good reasons to be suspicious of ritual? I mean, isn't that what the Reformation was all about when the German priest Martin Luther founder of Lutheranism, was calling the Catholic Church to task and uh, questioning the faithfulness of their own traditions, he was largely questioning their rituals. The selling of indulgences for sins, the charging of money to visit holy sites and relics. All of these things seemed to him to be an acted out version of a story that was more like the powerful using the powerless to get more money and less like the story of the captive set free that he read about in the gospel. He questioned these rituals, and it, he was probably right to do so. Another reason that we're suspicious of ritual, I think, is that a large part of American Christianity has been characterized by the desire to escape dead ritual and have a living experience of faith. Indeed, the whole story of the revival movements that the Baptist church and the Baptist tradition owes a lot of its own identity to were founded on the notion that individuals could have a spontaneous, non-ritualistic, life-altering encounter with God, and many of us have had those kinds of encounters. But the problem is that if you do revivals long enough, and you pay attention, as the famous revivalist Charles Finney did, you start to see patterns in the spontaneous. In fact, Finney made a list of steps, there were 11, that you could follow to guarantee a revival, and the conversions to go along with it. It was, you could just do it. There's something about humans. Even when we're desperately trying to experience something new and unique, we tend to fall into patterns. Ask any hipster who has tried to find the right combination of skinny jeans, ironic t-shirt, waxed handlebar mustache, only to see his mirror image walking down Colorado Boulevard opposite him. Ask any worship leader who has tried to reinvent worship every single week to keep it spontaneous, only to look back over his files and find the same patterns emerging week after week after week. Even when we're trying to escape rituals, we inadvertently make up new ones, and we might not even know we're doing it. If we're going to do it anyway, why not pay attention to the patterns that we're creating and the stories that they tell? And why not make patterns that tell the stories that we want to live into? Rituals are one of the most powerful ways we have to tell and live out the Christian story. They're a way to carve these stories that we say we believe into the grain of our everyday lives so that we keep going back to the story of God and the story keeps coming back to us, shaping us into patterns and dispositions that fit that story. It's a way to inscribe the story of God at work in our lives into our bones and marrow. Rituals are stories told in the flesh. Years ago I worked as a hospital chaplain in Arkansas and I spent a lot of time with sight patients and with people in inpatient uh, addiction recovery programs. And I don't think I really understood why a person gets a tattoo until I worked there. I, was, I came up off the elevator one day and on the psych floor and it was locked and you can only get in at certain times and this guy was waiting. He had been inpatient in addiction recovery, he is now attending daily sessions um, and he was waiting for the session to start again, he'd been out smoking. Um, and he was sitting there and he had uh, short sleeves on and I could see his arms and they were covered with tattoos. And they were really striking, it was very detailed, very colorful, he'd spent a lot of money and time on these tattoos. So we started talking a little bit, and I, said, I finally just said, what's, what's the story with your tattoos? What's the story with these? And he said, oh, the, this is, uh, and they, were, they were snakes and serpents wrapped around his arms. And he said, this is my addiction. He said, this, is, this represents to me how my addiction is trying to choke my life out. And I have to stay conscious of it all the time, because it will sneak up on me. And, it will, and, and even though I can't see it, I have to know that it's there, because that's the truth. So this was his way of taking something hidden and secret deep inside, but very real, and making it visible to himself and to other people. I have a friend at Fuller who has also been through the addiction recovery process. His name is Ryan. He's uh, now a graduate in uh, planning churches, I think, in in Europe. Fantastic guy. Uh, He's a gymnast, an athlete. He has huge upper body strength, a massive canvas for tattoos. Um, And in fact, he had a similar experience where... He wanted to tell the story of this life-changing thing that had happened in his life and how God had saved him from addiction uh, through the 12-step process, through, through recovery. And so one of, uh, one of his tattoos is, is most striking. I have a picture of it here. You can see here this is an, an old man sort of figure that he says sort of reminds him of Paul in prison, but also kind of reminds him of God. And in this, this figure is, is in chains, but he's breaking the chains. I asked Ryan's permission to show this because for Ryan, this is telling a different story than the man with the snakes. This is telling the story of chains being broken by the power of God. For my friend outside the site floor, his tattoo was about reminding him of the struggle he was in, and it made sure to keep him oriented with what he knew was true. For Ryan, his tattoos do the same thing, but the story that he's telling is a different one. It's a story of the power of God. These pictures inscribed into their bodies aren't just for them. They're for those of us who are fortunate enough to see them and the stories that they tell, or better yet, to ask for the stories that they tell. When your story is written in your body, it becomes deeply a part of you, but it also becomes available and visible to those around you in vivid clarity. There is great intention in a tattoo like that to tell a story. In a similar way, when we intentionally, consciously choose to engage in ritual practices, we connect the story of God, the story of the Bible, to our own stories, and we have the opportunity to remind ourselves and others what we say we believe. It's no accident that one common practice in the, at the start of Lent is called the imposition of ashes on Ash Wednesday, a ritual in which a cross is drawn in ashes on the forehead of each participant reminding them simultaneously that they are made of dust, and to dust they will return, and of the hope of resurrection looming behind that cross. Both of those stories are told there, and they're told on, on the outside so they can be seen. Lint does other things though. It also organizes time. I live as a student at Fuller in the academic year. Now my days are the same as your days, but there's this structure of September through June that organizes my life and sort of runs my, uh, is, is very real to me. I have a friend who's an accountant, and she lives in the fiscal year. Uh, don't do not try and get a hold of her June and July. You will not be able to, because even though her June and July are the same as my June and July, she lives in a different time structure that's overlaid onto our days. In much the same way, the church calendar or the church year in which Lent is a part structures time in such a way that we keep in such a way that our everyday lives are put into a story. This picture here is, is one illustration of the church calendar and you can see Lent there at the top. It's purple. Um, and it, and if, you, if you see the label right before that is ordinary time. Now, I always find that fantastic that the church calendar that distinguishes between ordinary time and special times. And that's the way that the ritual works. It's completely arbitrary. It's completely made up. And yet it's a structure and a way to organize your life around a particular story. As Christians, we can choose how we organize our lives. And this is one way to do it. Lent begins 40 days before Easter Sunday. It calls up and echoes the memory of the 40 days of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, which in itself echoes the 40 years of the Jews wandering the wilderness, leading to the Promised Land. It leads us into Holy Week and Good Friday when we remember the crucifixion of Jesus, and culminates in Easter when we remember the resurrection of Jesus. But Lent doesn't let you rush to the resurrection, it keeps you in the desert. My friend Brandon O'Brien, a former non ritualizing Baptist, now turned Presbyterian, wrote about Lent for Leadership Magazine. He writes, during Lent, Christians examine their hearts and are particularly diligent about putting away sinful behaviors. People often give up something for Lent. This period is a reminder that following Christ means dying to myself every day. Celebrating Easter this way may sound overly formal and complicated, and to be honest, at first it is. There's really no other time that someone tells us how we should feel and when. For that reason, the Lenten season and Holy Week can be a bit like driving a car with one underinflated tire. You're constantly working to keep the car in your lane while it wants to veer out. After all, there are times in Lent when I think, all right, I get it, I've repented, let's get a move on. But the season continues. It takes time for the script to be written in our bodies. I've been, I, uh, earlier this year, I, I spent three weeks visiting a different church. And if you don't think that the ritual practice of worship is written in your body, go visit another church. And you will feel it. <laughs> Because you don't know when to stand and when to sit and how to move. And everybody else does. They don't have to think. It takes time for that story to become a part of you. And in the same way, it takes time for these ritual structures to take hold and to start inscribing the story of God into our lives. So if rituals are a way to write the story of God in our flesh, what is the story that Lent tells what story does it ask us to fit ourselves into? In the season of Lent, we follow Jesus, fresh from his baptism, into a time of temptation, trial, and a duel between stories. I want to read this to you from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1-11. through 11. This is the story that Lent calls us to follow. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. When the de- then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. And then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. In Lent, we follow Jesus into the wilderness, where our identity, our story, is called into question where a competing story is being told. Jesus' temptation in the wilderness happens immediately after his baptism. His baptism in which the heavens opened and God spoke down to him and said, This is my son, my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. The Spirit descended on him like a dove. At the moment when Jesus should be most aware, most sure who he is, who he belongs to, where he has come from and where he is going, at that moment when Jesus is most sure what his story is and how it fits into the plan of his father. The spirit that met him in the ritual of washing a baptism leads him into the wilderness. You know, it's funny how when you're trying to follow the voice of God, you can move from basking in the warm glow of his presence to starving in the cold desert in just a few days. Take note, though, that Jesus was not tricked into this confrontation with the lie. He was led there by God. In the 40 days of Lent, we follow Jesus into the darkness, into the desert. And we face the temptation to believe that there is another, less demanding story we can fit our lives into. We are tempted to believe that there's an easier way to get to resurrection than to pass under the shadow of the cross. In the wilderness, we hear a different mythology. In this story, our power, our position, our paychecks, and our privilege are there for us to use to fill our stomachs and to make ourselves more comfortable. In this story, our relationship with God makes us invincible. So long as we have a Bible verse that we can quote and a promise that we can claim as our own, no matter how reckless or destructive that might make us and our actions to those around us. Oh, this story sounds so good. It promises success, money, power, influence, safety, comfort. All we have to do is believe in it, worship it, bow down to it. Fall down and worship me, he says. There are some things that you just can't mean until you get your whole body into it. A signature on the dotted line is not enough for this tempter. You have to act it out. But of course we know Jesus is not swallowed up by the lie. For every offer and every text that Satan offers as proof of his vision of reality, Jesus replies with the rest of the story. It is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is written, you shall not test the Lord your God. It is written, there is only one God who deserves to be bowed down and worshipped to, and you aren't him. The antidote to false stories and false storytellers, it seems, that would have us as their slaves, toiling away our lives in a world that they create for us. The antidote is to know whose story you are living in. People often point to this passage to show the value of Bible memorization. Jesus knows his scripture, but there's more to it than that. Spitting back proof texts or quotes that we've merely memorized in our minds doesn't work when your whole world is being deconstructed by a false vision of reality that attempts to replace the truth. No, if we're going to survive our encounter with the temptation to believe the lie, the false reality, we have to have the story of God carved deeply into the grain of our lives so that we don't just know the lie that threatens to paper over the gospel, but we can feel it in our bones. When the tempter comes to wrap us in the emperor's new clothes of a flattering new way of seeing ourselves, we can see the lie and push back with the narrative of how God has woven the little story of our lives into the grand story of the kingdom of God, that God has come near to us in Jesus, and though we did our worst to him, we killed him, he can take it, he can absorb it, and turn death into life, so that all innocent victims, all guilty sinners and hopeless cases, can follow him through the dark night and into day." Rituals don't work if we can't find a personal meaning in them. Melody had never seen the value of doing Lent until she encountered a story. She gave me a funny look. She maybe had seen the value in doing Lent. She had never put it into practice, as far as I know. She had never given up chocolate until she found a compelling personal reason in this story that she had encountered of this reality she had never seen before. She wanted to do something, to face it. Similarly, if you choose to observe Lent, the meaning will come from the intersection of the ritual as a tradition that comes in from outside of you and what you bring to that ritual. As we prepare to follow Jesus into the wilderness of Lent, I would encourage you to take the traditional emphasis uh, on sin, repentance, mourning, and find some jagged edge of yourself to sow that tradition to. Some sin to confess or to just let yourself become aware of for the first time. Some false story you've been bending your life around that you can name, reject, and unwind your life from. Some loss you never grieved. You now have 40 days built into the fabric of Christian time set aside for you to mourn, to do the work of naming and grieving that loss. Take it. Some pride or some secret infidelity you haven't let yourself look at, that the light of the gospel is peeling back so that God can heal it. God is at work in the broad cosmic sweep of history. God is at work in the texts and traditions that bring that story to us. And God is at work in your life and in mine. Ritual is a technique to intentionally connect these pieces. As the musicians come for a time of response, please join me in prayer over the space of time that we've chosen to set aside for this purpose. Father God, we pray this Lent that you will use this human structure, this practice of ritual to weave us more tightly into your story. We pray that the story of the kingdom will become our story, told in actions, inscribed in our flesh, beckoning us to follow into the darkness that precedes the light. Amen.